Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Mike Sharp, uh, candidate for House District 39 Bravo. So that's what, New Brighton-ish Yes, area? New Brighton, Columbia Heights, St. Anthony. Awesome. Yeah. So what made you decide to run? A little background on yourself and how you ended up getting involved. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's kind of hard to explain. It really, 2020 was the moment where I realized I need to get involved somehow. And so what I really wanted to do was get in and be a delegate at the state convention and and see what that was like you know help choose our candidates for statewide office um, so i just showed up at the precinct caucuses uh in february and we we're our, at the time our district was looking for like a mayoral candidate city council candidate and i just asked a question i was like hey didn't we just vote for mayor like what's the deal and they're like yeah it's only every two years um, you should do it. <laughs> it's like, you don't know who I am. Um, so I, I mentioned that someone joked about that uh, when I got home to my wife and she was home with our four kids and she's like, you should. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do this to me? Why are you kicking me out of the house? So, so we looked into it and we're like, yeah, this just would not work for our family. Because um, you're working, right? Yeah, you're a physician yeah, assistant. I'm a physician assistant. At the time, what was that at the time? I had just lost my job in the ER up in, uh, up in Glenwood. And um, I was getting a bunch of, I think at the time I was like fielding offers for, you know, some locum stuff and mm -hmm. other rural ER stuff. That's kind of been the niche I've been in the last, um, really since 2020. And I was looking, I, I got like six phone calls for different jobs. And I was like, I think I need to focus on work right now, you know, figuring out that situation. And um, so when my work situation stabilized, the state convention had happened. I was, I had full-time employment plus a locums job. And um, like three days after the convention, maybe a week after the convention, uh, our district got an email, hey, we had a really solid candidate for 39B, but the filing deadline's in three days and we need somebody. Like, had a cat and then they... We, we thought we had a candidate, the candidate just never showed up to file. Oh. And um, it was unfortunate, uh, but it was a great opportunity. I, so I talked to my wife about it again. She's like, oh, come on. <laughs> She's like, no, <laughs> I thought we were gonna do something small. And um, yeah, so that's kind of how we got in. I, I just, we both felt really compelled. We spent a lot of time praying about it, talking to friends about it. It was a pretty intense, like, 48 hours mm -hmm. deciding before um, the May 31st deadline over Memorial Day weekend. And, yeah, so that's how we got in. And, and as a medical professional, I was motivated by um, all the stuff going on around healthcare. Okay. I was seeing things falling apart um, in our hospital where I had been working since COVID started. Um, and around the state. And I was concerned that the, the real issues weren't necessarily being discussed. For instance, nurses are just leaving the workforce. Right. Um, and since maybe, really since after the first winter of COVID, our referral pattern was to go to St. Cloud. St. Cloud was basically closed from COVID through the summer when there was mm -hmm. no COVID into the next winter and things were just snowballing and well, getting worse. Voluntarily closed because they booted out all the nurses? Well, meaning meaning they were closed to admission. So they weren't taking my okay. GI bleeds okay. or my critical uh, care patients down in St. Cloud where they had ICU and they had ICU trained nurses. 
and ICU you know, trained physicians, they were saying, nope, sorry, we can't take any outside transfers. So then we'd be calling the cities, we'd be calling Mayo, uh, Fargo, Sioux Falls. Were they full from COVID patients or they, they had enough beds, not enough bodies? Uh, no, yeah, it's, it's been my understanding of the situation um, in talking with our nurse manager who was well-connected around the state um, was throughout the first winter of COVID, the second winter of COVID, and now ever since, um, it's been a staffing issue yeah. universally. And the staffing issues exacerbated by the fact that they booted good people for not having a vaccine or they've had these yes. mandates. Right. So, so every business, right, from McDonald's to my practice to everything, has a staffing shortage because no one wants to work. Um, and that's an interesting problem in and of itself. But then healthcare had this additional issue on top of it with mandates that I think drove out people who were motivated to work, experienced, wanted to do it, frontline critical people like ICU nurses, uh, ER nurses, and then and then they complain like, oh, it's just the staffing shortage. It's like, well, it, you know, it seems to be that you've made the staffing shortage worse than it would naturally be. Absolutely. So I, I think the first year of COVID, before the vaccine even came out, we were seeing problems. I mean, surgeries were all canceled, mm -hmm. so every healthcare organization is losing money. I was at Mayo at the time. I was at Mayo in Rochester in the ICU, and... Um, they were asking for voluntary furloughs, FTE cuts, early retirements. Um, and so some staff permanently left the workforce because- So they were trimming they were workforce to fit reduced demand. Correct. And I mean, I think it's worth- This is back May of 2020. Right, reminding yeah. everyone what happened in May of 2020 is Governor Walls in his infinite wisdom supported by Jan Malcolm said, we are going to cancel elective procedures. And other than, my understanding is other than a limited number of hospitals for limited windows of time, we were not being overrun with COVID cases. Like there was capacity to take knees and hearts and hips and- Yes. And, and so, and most people, this, fortunately or unfortunately, this podcast has gone deep on healthcare finance <laughs> for a few episodes. <laughs> and I love so it. <laughs> anyone that's listening is like, well, I know way more about, but the lifeblood of hospitals are knees, hips, elective procedures um, that are, you know, very important to the yep. people where they're being done. So if you cut off, you know, routine colonoscopies and endoscopies and those THAs and things like that, the hospital's finances get hammered. You cannot make money with a hospital that is just medical patients in the ICU. Correct. And so the hospitals were in significant financial pain. There were these large grants given from the federal government to the hospitals to try to keep them afloat financially. And they were given to all, because they were shut down. Um, you know, but many of them didn't need to be shut down or certainly not for the block of time where uh, elective care was restricted by walls. And so patients suffered, hospitals suffered. They tried to make ends meet by furloughing people, early retirement, reducing headcount. Yep. So I did not know that component of it, of how tight they, t how quickly they tightened to exacerbate that workforce yes. shortage. Yeah, so I think it would have been it would have been in March when the orders came down to cancel all elective yep. surgeries. And at that point, cancer patients are being called. So right. This is you, elective. Your cancer's elective. You can't have your colon taken out <laughs> this week. Maybe next week the governor will let us do it. Yeah. And I mean these residents we I talked to some residents and they're like in tears. Talking to these people over the phone. I mean, can you imagine delivering that yes. news to somebody? 
the guidance on what was elective was, you know, in people's minds are like, yeah, you don't need to get a breast augmentation now. Yeah, sure. sure. But that's not what was canceled. Yeah. I mean, we had skin cancer checks, like, you know, for primary care, routine diabetes care, hypertension care, all those people fell way off the wagon. And then it's like the back half of the year in 20 was like a disaster. Huge tumors, neglected people where we do pre-op and are like, why is your blood pressure 200? Have you been seeing any of your, no, you're the first person I've seen because of this tumor on my nose. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It was, the carnage was unbelievable. And I don't think Jan Malcolm or Tim Walsh are gonna be held to account for the amount of damage they did to patients and the healthcare system. When you're calling, you know, colon resections for cancer elective care and then banning it under punishment of law or, mm -hmm. you know, fake walls dictates not law, um, you're really hurting people. And it mm -hmm. also then trickles down to the hospital. So that's right. a long segue into that. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that people, again, need to be reminded of these things that happened and how much damage they did. And we can't just be like, yeah, it was a mistake. So I mean, that's what the Fauci's of the world want to do is, we did the best we could. It was a mistake. I think you could excuse two weeks. Right. I, I right. really do. And and this is this is part of this will get back into you know my foray into politics is that first two weeks I was like I had been obsessively following COVID online yep. on Twitter. I mean these there are these doctors in in Europe and and in China and these other places that were putting some really interesting information out about COVID in December of 2019, January of 2019. So I was in this like weird corner of Twitter following this weird disease that broke out in Wuhan. And then it starts coming across the Atlantic. And I'm like, oh crap, this is really bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in the ICU at Mayo Methodist Hospital. We're taking care of transplant patients, mm -hmm. bone marrow transplant patients, yeah. um, cancer patients, really sick, multi-drug resistant ortho infections, like really bad stuff. 10-3 is full of very sick people. Those people <laughs> are all gonna die from COVID. That's how I'm thinking, yeah, right. right? And so then, you know, we're seeing New York. Some of our, some of my colleagues went to New York to, to help out during the, during the worst of it. And so we see this coming and we're like, yeah, let's shut everything down for two weeks. Let's cooperate, let's do it. And, um, you know, then maybe April time, Dr. Jensen's getting out there, putting his neck out a little bit saying, mm -hmm. hey, you know what? People are gonna really get hurt by this. And I'm thinking, this guy, who is this guy? Right. <laughs> like, does he even, under what an idiot I was. But, um, you know, I, I was still in good faith thinking, no, you know, it's, it's really only gonna be two weeks. It's really mm -hmm. only gonna be, you know, a month. Th Who's going to tolerate this for so long? Yeah. They literally, they closed the parks in Rochester. Right. Just like, bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I was bringing my three-year-old out to the park. Like, there are these signs out there. The park is closed. I'm like, it doesn't look very closed. It looks <laughs> like there's no one here and it's open. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I realized that good faith was abused. Yeah. And um, when we were all in this together, it was all great. And then when it became all, you know... This, you know, President Trump said this, therefore this is bad. Right. You know, yeah, Kamala it, Harris saying, don't take a vaccine if Trump made it. That's right. That's oh, right. Okay. When it deteriorated to that level <clears throat> and all of medicine seemed to be infected with that, like, that partisanship. Yeah. I, I thought, you know what? I, I don't know what I can do, but I want to, like, I want to be a little closer to the action. So that's that's how I got involved with our uh, our local party. And then we just felt... We just felt compelled to, to sign up when the call came.
That's awesome. And so what has that experience been like? You didn't have a career in politics, no prior elected no, office. No, nothing. Yeah. Were mad with the way the world was going, said, I have something to offer. Um, you know, walk me through, like, how, how does that decision process go? How do you talk to your wife? And how do you train up? How do you decide what needs to be done? And yeah, how, how do you go from being a citizen to being a candidate? You know, that's, that's a good question. Um, I haven't had a lot of time to reflect on that. The, the, the process really for us was we knew at some point this was probably going to happen, probably decades down the road when sure. we don't have, you know, four little kids and, and uh, you know, we, we had more, more time. But it just, I, I think my wife, my wife and I have had a really interesting last few years uh, growing together. And one of, one of the things she would say is she just felt very certain that we were being called to this by God. And so our faith is very important to us. We had just gone through a massive conversion um, ourselves. And so she, she felt this deeply and she, you know, reluctantly was like, no, I, I think I need to encourage Mike to do this. And for me, it was like, just pray about it. And if, and this is kind of how we've operated, pray about it. If we feel certain in our gut, we feel peace in our gut, even if we're not sure how this is going to work, we just go for it. So once we made that decision to go for it, our BPOU was helpful, our local party. Uh, we have a lot of volunteers there that have a ton of experience and have seen a lot of candidates come and go and helped us out. So Adam Davis is our BPOU chair. He was super Adam's helpful great. getting yeah. us off the ground. And I, our BPOU had a lot, of, a lot of people who volunteered for you and helped <laughs> you out. So. Um, I had some I had some great people in our court and at our church. I go to St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in New Brighton. We have a lot of people who have um, been in politics, so they've just given us some really good advice. You know how to how to stay within, uh, you know, stay with stay on the road, I guess, and giving us some good guardrails, just you know, helping us stay positive and and focus. But it's just it's been a really fun learning experience, drinking from a fire hose. Um, <laughs> I did a fellowship at Mayo, Arizona for critical care. It was basically an intern year. I was, I was basically like a TY. Yeah. And um, that also, it felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. And I think that prepared yeah. me for this because, as you know, there's no end to what could be done right. when you're running for office. That's right. So it's, it's triaging your time, understanding what needs to be done, you know, IDing those voters, talking to them, getting them to turn out and vote and support you. Um, and then there's no way to learn other than to scrape your knees along yeah. the way. You can take all the preparation classes you want. You can talk to people who have run, but really you just have to scrape your knees and yeah. you have to find that balance with family, with work, with door knocking, phone calls. How do you raise the money? You know, how do you talk to people? Um, and how do you, how do you move people? Like th there's people who may open the door and, or may talk to you and say, you know, I never would have thought of voting for someone that's conservative or someone with an R behind their name. And um, you know, I think those conversations are fun because mm -hmm. what the mainstream media has done is make us feel that we are completely at war with our neighbors, that mm -hmm. we are totally different. But once you actually start to talk about things, you realize there's an awful lot in common that we have mm -hmm. and we may, and we generally want the same things across the political divide. We just differ on the ways to kind of get to those solutions. Um, but they would much rather, you know, make their money demonizing people and splitting us into two and 
making us hate each other. And sometimes I think at local, at a local level, it's it's almost a little easier to undo that. Like when you door knock, like yeah, you're gonna run into people that are just gonna be jerks. But like a lot of people, you know, I think are open to yeah, okay. Well, who are you as a person? Yeah. Even if I don't agree with you on everything, you know, you, you seem like you're doing this for good reasons, for the right reasons. And yeah. It's it's been really so. I also kind of had this feeling like, am I doing this because God is like punishing me for my sins? <laughs> like this is this is just going to be pure torture for the next six months. And it has been twenty five hail marys in the six hours. That's of right. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but it's it's just been amazing. You're exactly what you said. Occasionally, you'll get that person who's just yeah. wanting to be a jerk to somebody, and great, they get to take it out on me instead of someone else. Um, but most of the time. You're getting positive interactions with people. People are like, oh, that's so cool you're running. Or someone said one time to me, hey, uh, no candidate has ever knocked on my door before. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. Thanks for coming to talk to me. And um, those moments make it all worth it, honestly. Yeah. I, I had a guy, one guy emailed me out of the blue. I don't know if I even knocked on his door. I don't think I did. I'd been in his neighborhood. He probably saw one of my signs. But he emailed me and said, hey, Mike, I... I just read your bio on your website and you're going to be the first political candidate I've ever openly supported. Wow. <laughs> I just thought, who am I that this is happening to me? Like I, I'm just some guy who signed up because I'm concerned about what my children are going to inherit from yeah. me. And, uh, I, I just want to figure out what I can do to help. And this guy, like he, he's stepping out there because I did that. And, um, you know, I, I was just talking to someone at church this morning about um, how we don't really know who we're impacting when we, when we step up and do something. And, and so I haven't gotten a ton of those interactions, but even just one of those makes me think this was all worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. No, those, those are definitely the reason why you realize that this isn't, um, if you're going into public service for the right reasons, you realize why it's so important to do that because mm-hmm. quite a few folks who hold political office are narcissists or sociopaths and they do it for the accumulation of power. They don't do it because there's some higher ideal that, or yeah. that they see a problem that needs to be solved, right? And that's another valid, very valid reason to run, right? Like, yep. you know, we totally botched this, this uh, COVID lockdown stuff and, you know, we, we restricted freedoms and all these things and we hurt kids in school and, you know, th- that's wrong. Like, we can't let that happen again and I'm going to serve to try to make sure that never happens again. Um, <clears throat> so what's your, you're wearing a purple shirt. Yeah. I would imagine your district is probably purplish, purple yes. blue. So what's that like? Um, you know, it's the last couple election cycles, as you know, the suburbs generally did not respond well to Trump. Mm-hmm. And so I do get a fair amount of people who will come to the door and say, you know, I'm kind of a conservative I, I voted Republican up until Trump. Mm-hmm. And so those those have been some interesting conversations. I never know where those are going to go. Yeah. You know, they can they can sometimes go one direction or the other. Um, but I think a lot of people are just looking for someone who's willing to work hard, willing to work well with others and listen. And I am fortunate that my background really is easy to explain. In the emergency department, there's a law that says I have to work with everybody, and I've learned it. For the last five years, I've been working in rural emergency departments. I was moonlighting when I was at Mayo in the ICU. So, you know, I worked with all these different people. Mm -hmm. Most of them are not conservatives. Mm -hmm. And 
I know how to ask the right questions to get the answer that I need to understand the problem. And once we can work together and understand the problem, um, then we can start working on what, what the solution is. So I've had a couple good conversations with that, but you know, it, I have Ilhan Omar's district and Betty McCollum's district, mm -hmm. and they haven't had a close election unless mm -hmm. it was a Democratic primary. Um, so there are a lot of people that, that say, I'm a lifelong Democrat, I'm, I don't vote for Republicans, but thanks for coming by. Yeah, I mean, you, those folks, you're like, you know, what do you, what do you think, as a lifelong Democrat, what do you think your party stands for on issues like crime or schools or abortion? And they're like, you know, you'll more often than not get the Clinton answer of, what was it, safe, rare, and tragic? Yeah. And you're like, I understand that that's what you think the perception of the modern Democratic Party is, but the modern Democratic Party is about killing a 39-week-old child before it's been born. And everyone recoils. They're like, that's terrible. That's not true. Then you show them. And they're like, well, that's terrible. I agree. So now like, it turns yeah. out that we can have a conversation. It turns out that you think that the, the unhinged, radical nature of what the Democratic Party, the party ostensibly of JFK, has turned mm -hmm. into. Uh, JFK would not win a Democratic primary nowadays. Um, he would probably run as a fairly conservative Republican, mm -hmm. which is crazy. The whole world has flipped upside down, but they, people still hold on to this. My dad was union, he voted Democrat, you know, stuff like that. And my family votes Democrat. Well, are, what set of ideals are you voting for? Are you voting for um, good education for everybody, a livable wage for everybody, safe streets, you know, improving the lot of folks who are more, uh, have less than yourself? You're like, yeah, well, then you need to vote Republican because that's what we stand for. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you believe in coastal elites, uh, transgender ideology, um, unsafe streets, no, no cash bail, um, you know, persecuting first responders and law enforcement, then vote Republican. And, and then, you know, killing a 39-week-old baby, then uh, vote Democrat. Yeah. And th they assault uh, people that are conservative as being somehow radical. But the most radical people are all on the left. Yeah. And it, it, there's just this disconnect where voters can still check that box. And if you can go into the lion's den and peek open the door, give them a little bit of insight. Like, it, it's not the party that you think it is. Do some reading, tell me if you think you're better off than you were four years ago. Right, right. And I, I think, especially in the, um, in like the, the late boomer, early Gen X generation that grew up and gives those responses, it's, it's very easy to walk through those mm -hmm. steps. And I, I had one guy actually come to the door, he's like, are you Republican or Democrat? I said I'm a Republican, and he just, you know, kind of launches into his yeah. thing about yeah. guns and abortion, yeah. and we, <laughs> it was like a five or five or ten minute conversation, and he's like, you know, you listen pretty well. I might actually end up voting for you anyway, <laughs> and I think those yeah. are the moments, and unfortunately, it has to happen one by one. Yeah, it does. Because otherwise, you know, if people are just watching the news yeah. day and night, yeah. like they're not going to have those prior assumptions challenged a little bit yeah. and that you know discussing hey you know what this is a different these two parties are different than what you grew up right with. they're not going to realize that if they're just watching the television right. and they also this this idea of like wh where are you like well let's talk about what i actually am i'm a husband i'm a father i'm a physician uh son of immigrants like those are if we're gonna you know talk about what i am it's not i'm not a republican i'm yeah. all those other things i happen to hold beliefs that are conservative and I happen to run under a certain party designator, but like 
that's not who I am. I'm not mm -hmm. a Republican. Um, you know, I'm Neil, and like we're all individuals. And this idea that like, oh, I, you know, I, I could never be friends with you because you like Bernie Sanders, or something like that. That's ridiculous. And almost always, it's held, that that kind of discriminatory attitudes held by the left. Mm -hmm. And on the right, we're like, look, like, I, you know, I, I don't think any of Bernie's ideas are really good, but like, I don't care that you think Bernie's great. Like, we can still talk about football. We can talk about work. We can be friends. We can hang out. Our kids can hang out. Like. I don't know where it got so poisonous that a portion of the world feels like it needs to close itself off from anyone other than a tight little bubble that thinks exactly the way that they do and watches mm -hmm. MSNBC 12 hours a day and then just <laughs> go home and gets angry and then, you know, looks to yell at Mike Sharp when he comes by and talks to someone <laughs> yes, in front of the door. Like, yes. okay, man, I mean, I guess if that makes you happy, but you know, that's not good for society. It's not good right. for civil discourse and it's probably not good for your individual health. And so, that, yeah, and that's, that's what I'm realizing in, in getting out I think there are so many things that I've, I've been encouraged by. And there's other things that have really surprised me, like where our discourse is at. A lot of it still is like, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Yeah. And what, what I notice too, and I grew up this way, I, I grew up in a conservative evangelical household. And so, you know, I was, I was raised to believe a lot of things I still believe now that um, now are Republican ideas, mm -hmm. but I wasn't raised to think of myself as a Republican. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of conservatives that don't think of themselves as Republicans. I don't. I'm a conservative first or Republican Absolutely. somewhere way down the line. And so, you know, if you if you study any kind of history, not just the founding, but before even before the founding, partisanship, party spirit is known to be an evil. Mm -hmm. It's a vice. And so and the, and the founding fathers wrote a lot about that. And then of course, you know, immediately split into factions, but <laughs> it's, it's, a it's a problem with human nature. And I think conservatives recognize that this is not a healthy way to live, to think I am this party, therefore I can't talk to that party or right. whatever, you know? And so it's part of a problem with turnout too, <laughs> for voter yeah. turnout, because yeah. you're not like, hey, let's go help the team. It's like, oh, well, this person doesn't quite hold the same ideals as me, so. Yeah, I'm kind of busy on Tuesday night. Yeah, oh man. So you've got what we've, I mean, you know, the, the podcast up and, but we're what, 10 days, something like that? Uh, 13 days. Thir yeah, I knew you'd know the, day, 12 the days, exact right. number. Yeah. You're probably counting down the days. What do you do with these last 12 days? Does it all get out the vote? Just, Is that where yeah. you're at now? That's that's where I'm at now. We've got, we've got our sign locations. We've got, um, we've got a good consistent little group of volunteers. We've got funding, we've got enough money. We just need to get out there and just get in front of as many voters as we can and show that there is a reasonable, respectable alternative to what we currently have. And um, so, yeah, that's my plan. I've, uh, I've got a couple shifts in the ER coming up between now and Election Day, only two days. The other days, I'm out in the street. I'm going to be knocking on doors. That's the hard. I, I thought that was the hardest part about running for office was balancing family work and yeah. then the, the obligations of the campaign. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult. You understand why either people that are, you know, old enough where they're retired or independently wealthy, like it selects for these things yep. because it's just such a brutal time suck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got young, how's your oldest? My oldest is seven. Okay. All right. So we have an, our oldest is nine and like, that's like the best age and <laughs> missing that is brutal. Like those nights mm -hmm. where you'd have like, I would have, you know, five or six nights in a row where I couldn't tuck them in. That was just terrible. And so you understand why people don't go into, you know, why, why are there no 40-something-year-olds? Well, let me tell you what we're doing. We're, like, raising families and indoor careers and 
um, it, it's extraordinarily hard. So we get um, the folks we get involved in politics yep. part because the system is designed to make it extraordinarily hard to optimize for two things at once, particularly mm-hmm. family and, and, and the mm-hmm. demands of the job. And then, um, you know, like anything, it'll take all the time that you give it. So you have to k- kind of draw those boundaries. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I mean, have you, have you brought your family to any of this stuff with you? Yeah, you so the summer was great because we had parades. Sure. So the kids just absolutely loved that. They were, they were awesome. Um, they've done a little bit literature dropping. My seven-year-old called it litter dropping. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just, I thought it was so great. I didn't want to correct him, but he figured it out eventually. Um, so they, they have done some of that. And, um, but unfortunately, you know, some of this stuff, it's happening during nap times. You know, uh, my yeah. youngest is 18 months. So, you know, there's naps, there's school, now school schedule for my oldest two, um, pickups and drop-offs and all that. So it's, it's been challenging to keep them involved. They've been great. Um, you know, a funny, funny story was at the convention. I sat right behind your wife, and <laughs> who had our like holding what, your baby, two, two week yeah, old, maybe, maybe <laughs> um, holding your baby. You know, we're passing the baby around behind her, and uh, I was texting my wife. I was like, "Hey, this is Dr. Shaw's wife, and this is her, this is her like ten day old baby." And she's like, don't expect that level of support from me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then like two weeks later, I filed for office. So (laughs) it's amazing how how things change. Dude, Sarah's an absolute warrior. And that baby got passed around like all of 40 and then parts of 39. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this baby's going to get zero autoimmune disease. But she's exposed to like all the (laughs) pathogens. That's right. That's right. All right. Yeah, no. Uh, and I mean, she was just sleeping the whole time. She was doing great. And it was loud in there. I mean, you got yes. like people's walk up music, all yeah. this stuff, people yelling, screaming. And then, um, you know, the chairs are so tight. Mm-hmm. So Sarah's like, oh, I got to change a diaper. And people just like, they're like, oh, just change it right here. They'll yeah. like huddle around. Yeah. <laughs> change the diaper on it the floor. It was amazing. The, the whole, like the whole group around was just like, <laughs> everybody was just turned around and looked at the baby. It's hilarious. So, you know, compare and contrast, like, two weeks later. So, like, so the Republican convention, I thought was fun. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, no metal detectors. There's open carry. <laughs> probably every fourth person's got a gun. Yeah. Some dude's probably got a machete. And then there's babies and kids. There's, like, a whole yes. row of kids watching iPads in the back yeah. and just hanging out with their yeah. family. Like, I was like, this is amazing. Like, I wish awesome. people could see this because, like, this is our party, right? Like, family and civic engagement and being involved and being friendly and yeah. – um, and it's like the same event center, you know, the Democrats had to show an ID to get in, right? So you don't have to show an ID to vote. You have to show an ID to get into your own yep. convention because we're worried about rabble rousers. Everyone's six feet apart. Everyone's wearing a mask, Vax checks, uh, probably not a firearm anywhere near that room. And you're like, I- I- is this, is this, is this who you want in charge? Like these guys yeah. are like the people who like want to have like fun and have their kids engaged and have them see how the, how the whole system works. And yeah. It was a it was a great it was a great. Those are first first time. Yeah, me too. It, yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. fun. I mean, I might well, go next time and just time. sit up sit, sit up top with like a hot dog and have fun yes. and watch it yes. as opposed to being in it. Yeah. No. So that was it was a ton of fun. I learned a lot, um, and that was honestly that was the coolest thing. I was like, man, I wish Beck and the kids were here. Like this yeah. would have been. She would have got all all these people would have taken the kids, and it would have been a good time. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So we. We had a good time at the convention, and we've just been super supportive, uh, had a lot of support from people, again, saying, wow, I can't believe you guys are doing this, all these kids, and, you know, our fifth one's due in January. Like, it's been it's been a pretty crazy time. 
And my wife uh, has been amazing. She's our treasurer. So, you know, she's also learning a bunch of stuff on the fly sure. here. And um, it's, it's just been amazing to, to see what we're capable of doing that we didn't know that we could. Yeah. And I, I think if we've, we've been married just over, well, it's going to be 11 years in January. Um, if you'd have told me 11 years ago, this is what we'd be doing in 10 years, I would have just said, that's absolutely not happening. Well, it, but it just takes that thing to wake you up, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and, and everyone wakes up at a different time. And, you know, the other thing, when people are like, oh, I hate Trump, this, that, I say, you know what? Regardless of how you feel about Trump, what he did was wake a lot of people up. The media is lying to you. Now I think even people who are left to center are like, yeah, I don't think the media is true. Okay, well, who was yelling that in 2015, 2016? It's fake media it's, f it's totally fake news yeah um you know he woke people up to the fact that like look just because people have an r after your name they might not have your best interest at heart i mean government grows i mean you know when tim Pawlenty was in office the government was the budget in minnesota was half of what it is today and we've had periods of time where you've had the house and the senate mm -hmm. and it's twice as much so you know it's it's this political class that we're up against and this idea that there's this there are people who profit from falsely dividing us when really what we want are, you know, safe streets, good schools, good jobs, a community that works, that values our tax dollar and takes as few of them as needed to do the essential functions of government. And we need ordinary people to serve at every level. And if we don't have that, and it's this career political class, the Nancy Pelosi's, Chuck Schumer's, Mitch McConnell's of the world, well, we're going to get more of what we have. And I don't think anyone left, right, or center thinks what we have now is great. Yeah. Well, if you don't think it's great, it's perfectly optimized to deliver the results that it's delivering for the people it's delivering them for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're uh, Pfizer or Lockheed or Raytheon, system works awful well for you. Um, but if you're someone trying, a single mom trying to put food on the table and gas in her tank, I think things are going pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And the sooner we can break out of this left-right tribalist mindset and say, okay, let's get ordinary people who want to actually serve who feel a calling, um, who understand the problems that we face, the country's gonna be in a much better place if we do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, it, getting back to the local level, you know, controlling what we can control in our daily lives is something that a lot of us have lost sight of. You know, I, I've been guilty of it myself in a number of periods of my life where I spend too much time worrying about what's happening in Washington, D.C. Right. when I've got things that I could be doing right here. And I think that's the other thing people don't realize. I, I realized this at the, at the precinct caucus was we like to, as conservatives, we like to think of ourselves as self-governed, but we're really just governed by the people that bother to show up, you know? And at this point, if you show up, showing up at a precinct caucus or at a city council meeting or at a school board meeting, you are having far more of an effect than if you just show up on one day to vote. I and love that. People don't understand. We, we still are self-governed, but there's only a very small percentage of people that bother to show up to these lower level meetings. We love to watch Fox and MSNBC and CNN and get mad about what's happening mm -hmm. around the world and, and far away from us in DC. But we've got a lot of things we could help with right here. So what are the, some of those issues that you think are really critical for, you know, you're elected, you're sworn in in January. What do you think we should be working on as a state legislature? 
I mean, we've, we've got a lot of things. Um, I think crime is number one. Crime is out of control. It's, it's finally become the front and center of the local media here because it's become such a major issue. But the fact is, over the last four years, especially since 2020 and the riots, we've seen carjackings go through the roof. And, and those random acts of violence, I think what's so insidious about them is it breaks down trust. It breaks down the trust between me and any random person I see in the street. Because now uh, my awareness is up to like, okay, so is that person go out here to harm me? Are they gonna mm -hmm. just do something randomly to like, you know, try to take my iPhone or whatever? I mean, we've seen this stuff down at the Twin Stadium mm -hmm. um, in recent years where someone gets just beaten to smithereens for an iPhone. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's really, it's just for like nothing, really. I mean, what is an iPhone compared to what they're doing to that right. person? Right. And so that's the kind of thing. And then there's no consequences. Exactly. That. And that's that's the thing we need to get back to is if people, if people are not afraid to take human life or people are not afraid to violate a human life, then at least let them be afraid of getting caught for doing it. Mm -hmm. And right now, we're seeing an atmosphere. The uh, the AUSA who who was doing the um, doing the feeding our future stuff. He mm -hmm. had a press conference before feeding our future all broke. Um, as a national story, he did a he did a uh, press conference on crime, and that was one of his quotes. Was there many of the criminals that I've spoken to as the attorney of the uh, United States do not feel afraid. Yep. of the consequences. There's no deterrent capability exactly. for the current justice system. Exactly. And when you have guys like Keith Ellison who are unwilling to prosecute anything, they're happy to persecute conservative nonprofits or companies, but they're not going to prosecute actual fraud and crime. Uh, you've got corrupt people like Walls claiming that, like, no, 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 I didn't. No, you, you ordered them to feed a fraudulent program even though you knew it was fraudulent. And um, this continues all the time. And then the, if you're a cop, like, why would you get out of your squad, risk life and limb to take somebody in that's a dangerous criminal, knowing that your county attorney who's corrupt, it's just going to be like, I'm not going to charge them. No bail, they're back out. Right. Right? It's, it's a huge problem. I've spoken with a, a cop uh, with the Minneapolis Parks Department, which um, is a separate department from Minneapolis Police, but, you know, they work similar, obviously, similar, similar geography, same people. They're arresting over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I'm, he's like, I'm one of the crazy guys. I just like, I'm willing to do this no matter what. He thinks it's worth it. But how many people are, are so committed that they're willing to put their lives on the line without any backup <laughs> from yeah. their lawmakers, from you know, the other law enforcement officials who are going to be trying to prosecute these crimes? So we do, we do need to give cops a reason to get back out on the street. You know, I think a lot of what we've seen in healthcare with the attrition is even worse in the law enforcement. Oh, MPDs right understaffed now. by hundreds and hundreds of officers. And they have been for years. Yeah. But and I mean, why would they come back now? Why would you now? You're going to arrest the same dude. They're not going to get charged with anything. They're going to walk because the county attorney doesn't want to do anything. And um, <laughs> the, the, the leftist elitists, they just hire their own private security, right? It's a bunch of people. Ah, we're rich people at Lake of the Isles. We'll just hire our own security. Yeah. What does that do for the single mom in North Minneapolis? What does that do for the people that are trying to just walk to work in Northeast and not get beat to smithereens? It doesn't do anything for them. They can't hire their own private security. Right. So I get it that you want to hide behind yours, but real people working real jobs need 
a police force that has a deterrent capability for criminals. Right. And, um, you know, these aren't some guy who's down on his luck. These are career-hardened criminals committing violent crime, mm -hmm. and there has to be some consequence to doing that. So what, can the, what, what would you think the legislature could do? How could they help? What would you propose? I mean, I don't, I think in theory, the idea of a mandatory minimum sentence sounds like a, a, a bad or a mean or kind of a, a blunt tool to use. But the fact is, sometimes a blunt tool is what's needed to be used. And so I think it's, it seems to me like common sense. If someone illegally shoots somebody else, if you have a stolen gun, you shoot it a teenager or you shoot into a crowd, say, at the state fair, I mean, mm -hmm. that should be a mandatory jail sentence. Absolutely. Right, right. I mean, the judges have, you know, they get judicial discretion so that they can have some degree of discretion, but if you abuse it. Exactly. <laughs> unfortunately, the legislature is going to have to tie your hands. And right. And the one way they can do that, it's like, th you know, this is why you guys can't have nice things, right? Because you abuse it. <laughs> yeah. And so we can tie your hands. Yeah. Um, but there's there's always, you know, there's, there's issues with that. I mean, the, the, I, I share your... Like a little, you know, this unease with mandatory minimums, particularly with how badly they failed during the drug war and yep. massively incarcerating, you know, people who probably didn't need to be incarcerated, or certainly not for that long. Um, and it's gone the other way now with mm -hmm. these activist judges who, again, yeah, well, I'll just hire my own private security or whatever, and who cares about people in North Minneapolis um, or New Brighton? So, yeah, I think mandatory minimums, th those make sense. It's sad that it's come to that. Yeah. Um, but I don't think the judges are giving us much of a choice. Right. I mean, I think the there's the virtue of prudence. Um, if that was widespread throughout the judicial system, that would be a great thing. And then we the legislature wouldn't have to say because we could try, you know, we just try to delegate that decision making to the to the closest person mm -hmm. to the situation. And I think the judge in general is the closest to that situation. The lawyers, you know, they argue the case that's where that decision ideally would be made but like you said if we're seeing people released from prison you know dozens of times and then going out and committing another you know felony assault or mm -hmm. murder or all these other things what are we really doing then and again the question is are we treating people with the dignity that they really have i think treating say a 14 year old kid who does a carjacking differently than a 30-year-old man who does a carjacking for the hundredth time in his life, mm -hmm. that's appropriate, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, juvenile, the juvenile justice system is a big hot topic. Right. I don't think I have all the answers to that, but I think we do need to realize that the law is something of a teacher, that if, if these, these guys don't have real good teachers in their lives, if they don't have fathers or uncles or you know, other men who are willing to tell them you're better than doing crime <laughs> for your life, mm -hmm. you're better than, you know, stealing and doing drugs, then the law needs to take you, take that person out of that situation and give them another opportunity. And ideally rehabilitate. I mean, exactly. that's where I think a lot of very legitimate criticism of our uh, incarceration system is that what's the rehabilitative component of this? And the rate of recidivism is insane. Mm -hmm. So if we want to yeah, we can all agree left, right, and center that we're not doing a good job. First of all, we're not getting addicts off if they have a drug addiction when they're in prisons. Yep. And we're certainly not giving them a pathway to, for the people who want, you know, who, who need that extra help. Like, 
How are we going to train you up? What are you going to do when you get back? Are you going to go back into the same neighborhood with the same crew, run the same game, and end up back here in six months? Yeah. Or do we have a pathway out for you? I mean, these are great questions, and I think that, that these are ones we can certainly work with you know, folks that are left center to, yep. to solve. Yep. Um, but the fact is you can't be integrated into the population if you are a career criminal. Right. Right. And we have to draw that distinction between the people who are unrehabilitatable or have no desire and the people who are like, yeah, you know, I'd like to not do this. I'd like to not be here. I'd like right. to do something else. Um, and that's why it's 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 always bad when you have to use the broad sort of legislation. But it's getting to the point where it's like, I don't you know, I don't see another way around it. Right. To actually extract the bad dudes from society right. and put them in a place where they cannot harm innocent people. Right. right. And and I think I mean there's this is a huge issue, but at at the legislative level, I think that's the big thing we can do to address it. Sure. And make sure that violent criminals are not being let out by nonprofit bail funds <laughs> who are taking money from billionaires, international billionaires, so that career criminals can go around and terrorize our streets. Uh, one man uh, gave me a quote that uh, when when criminals are allowed to run free, everybody else is in prison. Hmm. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. That you know, would you want it? Would you have wanted to be near Lake Street in 2020 in May or in June when those riots started? No. Yeah. All those neighbors. I used to live. Uh, right near the corner of Chicago and Lake. And okay. I, I was watching, you know, Target, the videos of Target being looted. I was working a night shift at Mayo. And uh, I'm texting my friends who we used to live with. And they're like, yeah, we hear the helicopters, nothing's happening. And then at one in the morning, they're like, oh yeah, we're watching them loot Chicago Lake Liquors. Mm -hmm. And then a few days later, all the neighbors got a bucket brigade together to put out the fire at US Bank. That was, you know, three doors down from the nearest house or whatever. and you know, they're, tr they're protecting their own neighborhood. And so mm -hmm. that was an example of everybody getting together for the common good and not really caring what your ideology is, mm -hmm. but also an example of everybody was in a prison of fear in that yeah. area. Like you knew the cops weren't coming, you knew the fire department wasn't coming because they couldn't get there. Yeah. Well, thankfully, a lot of those guys had long rifles <laughs> and they're out there and like, you're not burning this neighborhood <laughs> That's down. That's right, that's right. And so when law and order broke down for that, for that week, we saw a lot of regular people step up. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we can't we can't have that. That's not how you run a society. Right. There, you're not going to. It's that's going to deteriorate into even worse things if that's allowed to keep going. Yeah. So crime, obviously, a huge a huge issue, and I think you know some some great pieces you've touched on with the way the legislature could try to bring it down. What else do you think are big issues? Talking to people at the door. I mean, the economy's huge, prices of everything. Um, and what's great in Minnesota is- I thought the economy was strong as hell. That's what Joe Biden <laughs> oh, said. Well, there's, yeah, I mean, the economy's awesome. Prices are going down. <laughs> Gas is basically free. I mean, everybody knows this. Um, but no, for real, what we, what we have in Minnesota is we have this huge budget surplus between nine and $12 billion and so it would be very easy to make Minnesota no longer be the fifth highest tax state in the country and make it, you know, somewhere up, maybe get it out of the top 10, who knows, <laughs> let's be crazy. Um, but I think, you know, cutting taxes is a very easy thing that we could do. And we could, again, we could make it targeted so that, 
you know, people on fixed incomes with Social Security, you mm -hmm. know, cut, you know, why are we taxing Social Security? This was like a, a mandatory federal savings program. Yeah, can you talk have. more about that? Because some, some people may not know that that are listening, people that aren't on Social Security. What, yeah. what do you mean by tax Social Security? I thought Social Security was already taxed. It's to pull it out of my paycheck. That's right. That's right. So uh, you and I uh, have, I think it's 12% of our paycheck goes to, uh, to pay for Medicare, or I'm sorry, for Social Security. Uh, the soon-to-be-broke Social Security Trust Fund. Correct, yes, correct, right. which is you know, going broker <laughs> by the second. By the second, Because yep. of inflation. <laughs> um, so all that money that we're getting taxed on goes to, goes to the federal government, then Social Security uh, distributes that to retirees. If you're of retirement age or on disability, you get, you get Social Security. And in Minnesota, the state of Minnesota taxes that as taxable income. So we taxed you, and then we're going to tax your tax. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And we are, uh, there's not many states that do this, right? No, I, I can't remember how many other states, but it's, I think it's less It's like low 10. single digits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So Minnesota is an outlier. And uh, so we tax these folks that are on fixed income. Now, Social Security just had, I think, one of its biggest ever adjustments to COLA. It was like 8 point something percent. That's great because that's half of inflation. I think people don't realize it. <laughs> yes. you know, I don't know if you bought Halloween candy yet. I haven't. Get the stuff I'm without terrified. the fentanyl in it. It's, you know, <laughs> it's harder, harder to do. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, my wife was terrified. She's like, how are we supposed to know which Skittles? And I was like, I don't know. Just, just keep don't get Skittles. Yeah, just get chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, it was like they're gonna hide razors in the. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so like, I was don't like cut your razors, and get fentanyl. <laughs> uh, what do we want? So yeah, Halloween candy is like fifty percent up. It's crazy. And then you know, year over year, everyone's um, there's there's this myth like that they've lied about inflation since the '80s when they re reconfigured how they calculated a CPI. But it's like fifteen to eighteen percent. And if you ask any household. Uh, can you pull your grocery bill from Cub a yeah. year ago and today for the same basket of goods and tell me what the difference is? It's 20%, yeah. right? At 15 least. to 20%. So this COLA increase of half of what actual inflation is, and you're like a fixed income pensioner. You're like, how am I supposed to uh, feed myself? Gas is on its way back up. How am I supposed to put gas into my car to go to my doctor's appointments? Oh, and then by the way, the state of Minnesota wants to tax me on this. So in real terms, the amount that these folks have lost in the last year is staggering. And what are you going to do? You're 85. What, you can go pick get up, a, pick new up job? a job, no. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And um, you know, so that's and honestly, despite the fact that you know that's a that's a crazy tax that never should have existed in the first place. Um, that would be a small part of what we would do to try to get money back in taxpayers' hands. Because again, inflation has been crazy. We are one of the highest tax states in the union. And, you know, we just, we shouldn't try to be New York, California. Um, it's not going well for them, first of all. <laughs> and uh, I, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of people are moving to Florida and Arizona <laughs> a lot are. more than before. I'm like, can we just, we can't change the weather. Unfortunately not. Despite what everyone says. It's a long says. ways for global warming to make <clears throat> this place uh, Florida. We're not, we're not going to be Florida anytime soon. So we can't give them another reason to, to leave. I yeah. mean, there's currently no income tax in Florida or in Texas. Um, I did my training. Or even in South Dakota. That's and right. And minimal income tax in North Dakota, right? That's right. And then Iowa cut their taxes to like, that's like 4%. And yeah. Wisconsin just had a big tax cut. So it's like, uh, guys... Like we don't even know all the way into Florida. We hemorrhage people. Yeah, yeah, especially the ones the ones on the border. Um, 
you know, the these small towns where I've been working, I've worked a lot with uh, Avera McKinnon in Sioux Falls. And they've, Sioux Falls, I'm like, that's like a three hour drive from here. I mean, that's not yeah. very far. Yeah. You know, people are, people are gonna start really thinking about it, especially if you wanna open a business. With my, with my job change this year, I, you know, became an LLC and, and started having to deal with all this mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm like, this is crazy. Why would I start a business in Minnesota? Could I hire anybody? Absolutely not. I'd have to have such so much money coming <laughs> in every year to even hire like a part-time administrative assistant Yeah. Um, and pay them like $10 an hour. I'd have to make so much money to do that because of the taxes associated with trying to start a business in this state. Yeah, and so that drives out the business creators who want to create jobs, yeah. right? I mean, you start a business, and you need employees, you need to create good, high-paying jobs. Well, we're driving those people out, and they take the capital with them, and then they create jobs somewhere else. Yeah. And we have to stop that. I mean, we almost lost our eighth congressional seat because we are every state is in competition with every other state for population. Yeah. And so if you have a net efflux of people or not enough influx, you will lose that's not a winning road. I mean, what, California lost a couple seats. Illinois did. New York did. Mm -hmm. Florida and Texas will gain. So we have to look at, like, if you want Minnesota's economy to be vibrant going forward, it has to be a place that business makers are not afraid to bring their business. Because we have a great workforce. We have a great industrial capacity, mining, ag, very diverse industry, mm -hmm. um, excellent service sector, great health care, but, like, you know, they're going to look at it and be like, the tax and regulatory environment is such that I cannot afford yeah. to have a business in Minnesota. Yeah. So and no thanks. That's, that's, what I, that's what I realized when I, so I did my PA school down in Arizona. I moved to Phoenix in 2014, uh, moved back to Rochester in 2017. So those three years I was down there, it really gave me an appreciation for how great the people are in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Arizona was awesome. I would love to go back and visit, but nobody almost nobody lives in Arizona as like a, a thing that their family did. They, everyone's looking to get back home at some point mm -hmm. in their life. And that kind of just transience, it, it makes it harder to, to put down new roots, to, to make new friends, because while well, they're probably just going to leave in a year to go back and, you know, be closer to mom and dad. So, I mean, we did the same thing. We wanted to get back and be closer to our family. And so we you know, I took a job up in Rochester and eventually we moved to the cities. Um, and I think the rootedness of people in Minnesota is one of those things that's underrated about why our economy and our, our government for a long time was it really worked for people. And now we're getting this more, you know, divided um, just like just like a lot of places, but we're getting more and more divided, more and more you know, not talking to each other walled off mm -hmm. from each other in this state. And we're going to lose a lot of that community connection that, we, that we've that we had. I, I've been amazed in Columbia Heights, there are so many people that are multi-generational yep. residents of just Columbia Heights. They didn't even move to New Brighton or St. Anthony or Moundsview. They just live in Columbia Heights. And um, that's something that I don't think we value enough in our culture is, is rootedness and again, chasing businesses away, getting rid of, you know, the places where people can can work and raise a family and stay in their home, you know, stay in Columbia Heights and have a great job. That's going to that's going to be bad for Columbia Heights. Mm -hmm. So, bad tax environment, 
ultimately leads for leads to you know breakdown in community. Yeah, I've to some degree. Absolutely. So we talked about some tax policy things. It'd be nice to give that massive surplus back. Um, I mean, I, I'd love it if you know if we wiped out the Social Security double tax. I think that has a tag of a couple billion, so there should be quite a bit left for some yep. big big time tax relief. Yep. But can give it all back. I mean, right? I mean, yeah, right now, absolutely. every absolutely. household struggling. Yep. Every household absolutely. Struggling. And this is this is probably a one time surplus. So. The idea of like, oh, we're going to start some new programs and, you know, kind of oh, take a few million here, a few million mm-hmm. there and, and do these things. Well, now you're committing to, hey, we're going to have this much money coming in for decades to come. And we all know that's not true. We got a ton of money influx from all these different COVID bills that came from the federal government. A lot of people just had a huge income bump in mm-hmm. 2020 and 2021 because there was all this new online industry and all all kinds of white collar work Um, so a lot of people made more money in 2020 and 2021 and so then the state made more money and that's not always going to be the case Mm -hmm. especially with inflation going the way it is Um, you know the housing housing market is you know i think a signal of what's coming for us yep and so we can't be building new programs when we're already, you know, looking at a recession, right, you know, right just a few weeks from now, potentially. If you were a household and you were looking and said, well, I see clouds on the horizon economically, you wouldn't go buy a new Corvette. Absolutely. Probably not a good time to take on additional debt. And when you have new government programs, they're future debt. You have to pay for them in future cycles or you have to cut them. And government is extraordinarily bad at shrinking. Yeah. Um, you know, households are very good at shrinking. Well, we don't need to go out to eat, so we're just going to stop doing that. Yep. Know, I wish the government worked that way. Like, you know, we really don't need these essential programs. Let's pare them down. That Otherwise, that's how you get the 100% ballooning in the budget between the time where I first moved to Minnesota to go to medical school and now. Yeah. Um, and it's like the opposite of Thatcher's ratchet. Like every time government gets a little, it gets a little bigger, a little bigger, a little bigger. Then you look back 10 years you're like, man, I thought that was just a $1 million spending program. And all of a sudden, it's like an extra billion dollars on the budget. Yeah. Well, that's how we got here. Yeah. So don't let it happen. There has to be that fiscal discipline. You have to look at what you can cut. Is there going to be some constituency that's that's hurt? Yeah, of course. But like, was that really a core function of government to begin with? Should we should we ever have greenlit that thing that we did? Um, but it's it's one of, I mean, you know, when you're in legislature, that's going to be one of the hardest things. It's like yeah. cutting. Well, and we're in a good position right now because we don't even need to worry about cutting as much as we just need to give everybody their money back. <laughs> I mean, if I got charged $9 billion extra dollars by Walmart, I would expect them to give me every <laughs> single penny back. That's right. And I, I think that's a fair way to think about this. About our government programs, we have very generous welfare um, and other programs in Minnesota. I was looking at when, when I was becoming a self-employed uh, business owner, I was looking at, hey, what am I going to do for my um, health mm-hmm. plan? And I was talking to my accountant. And he said, hey, well, you know what? Look at look at the Minnesota Care website. Look how much a family of six can make and still qualify for Minnesota Care. Mm-hmm. And you can, as a family of six, you can make six digits and still qualify for Minnesota Care for a subsidy for the wife and kids. Wow. So. That means you know four dollar copays for like everything. Um, I didn't look into the details of it, but um, that's that's the level of spending that we're at right now, and we still have a surplus. So 
let's let's get the surplus back to the people. I, I do think there are things we could do a lot better spending wise, but um, I think at this point, you know, short term, easy things to do, get the people their money back. <laughs> and then we'll talk about what to do <laughs> with the economic downturn that may be coming. Yeah, good, I like that. So economy, crime, what are your thoughts on our school system? Yeah, education is, I mean, it's, it's important and it's something that I think has been neglected, but not necessarily in the way that's normally talked about. Um, a lot of Democrats like to talk about the funding level of schools. And you know, there's not a lot of transparency around how much per pupil is spent in these public schools. I went to public school, I graduated from Maple Grove Senior High. Um, it was great, I had a great education. I was prepared for college. You know, I, I had everything that I needed. I mean, it could have been better. Uh, I, I sometimes wish I would have gotten a little more, you know, Greek and Latin and all, all kinds of these more exotic things, but they got me the basics. And what we're doing right now, a lot of districts are getting more and more money to do worse and worse um, at meeting the kids' needs. So, for instance, the test scores that just were released um, this summer by the Minnesota Department of Education. In Columbia Heights, I believe it was in 2018, the um, reading proficiency, or I'm sorry, the math proficiency, I believe, it was 30%. That means 30% of kids were performing up to grade level. Who defines what's grade level? You know, that's, in my opinion, that's also a low standard. Mm -hmm. So, only less than a third of the kids are meeting the already low bar. And now that got worse, that, that went down to 11%, I think it went up to 17% this past year. So we are, we're not just failing most kids. I mean, we are utterly failing. This, this entire system is not meeting the needs of kids. We keep putting more money into it. Why isn't it working? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm year glad after you year, asked. Republicans love to just shovel money at the public school system. We ask for no accountability. We ask for no test scores, no graduation That's right. rates. That's right. Why? So, I, I don't know exactly why. I mean, I have my theories why, but the fact is, I think a lot of people hear, "Hey, you need more. You need more money to educate my kids." Absolutely. Let's approve that levy. Mm -hmm. Because when I hear. I need more money to, to educate your kids. I hear, oh, your, your teachers need more money. You guys need more school supplies. You need more things like that. But what we've seen since 2000 is 88% increase in the amount of administrative staff at these schools. And we've seen an 8% increase in the number of students and in the number of teachers. Mm -hmm. So that's like no child left behind era. So we've seen a bloat in administrative um, and principals and district level officials. Unnecessary people, because it seems that, I mean, I graduated in 98 from high school, schools were doing okay. They were without, doing okay in 07 without, with 88, 80% <laughs> fewer administrators. Yes, yeah, yeah, and um, you know, that just started around the time when I was uh, getting out of high school in 07. And what we see and what I experienced, I went two years to a, a very small private school in Maple Grove, it was just a couple blocks from my house, what I saw there was a lot of parental involvement mm -hmm. and a lot of volunteerism and a lot of people making a lot less money than they could have on the private market. And I also got a much better education those two years. Um, and again, it was for a fraction of the cost that 
the Maple Grove School District was getting for me to go to Maple Grove, right? And now what we're seeing is even bigger increase. I, when I last looked, um, the publicly available data that I could find was, I think, from 2018. And we're spending between fifteen dollars and $18,000 per kid at Mounds View, St. Anthony, and Columbia Heights. That's How, a crazy amount of that's money. That's a crazy that's, amount that's of money. That's way more than uh, my private school tuition for my kids. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's way more. Th yeah. That's, it's more than the unsubsidized um, private school education that, you know, these Catholic, Catholic di the, the diocese will um, fund parish schools. So they'll, they'll say, hey, you know, this school costs $14,000 per kid when we add up all the costs, but we're only charging you five or 10 or 12. So right now, a parent could send their kid to a local um, Catholic school for somewhere between five and $8,000 in elementary school. And we're spending three times that to get 30% proficiency in math. That's devastating. Now, what if we gave that money back to the parents and said, you want to go private? You want to go public charter? Take it. Take the money. Yeah. And, and that's that's the thing. So when when I mentioned the the private schools that the private school that I went to, the private school I send my kids to. Those are all parents who earn a living wage, have extra that they can invest mm -hmm. in their kids education. And usually one of the parents is either able to stay home or work part time so that they can, you know, make sure to get the kids to and from where they need to be. Now, people who are living paycheck to paycheck are under even more stress right now. And we, you know, I think it's kind of an unimaginable, unattainable goal for some of them to think I could send my kid to a really great private school that would teach my kids the things that I believe in <laughs> and teach them math and teach them how to read and write, that's, that's, you're talking crazy. Yeah. But we could very easily do that. We would, and it wouldn't be defunding the public schools. It would, you know, you could still, we could still send a fraction of that money to the public schools to keep their buildings up, to keep the lights on, to serve all those kids. Cause that, I mean, 80 or 90% of the, 90 plus percent of the kids in school in Minnesota are in public schools. So we need to, obviously we need to fund those places. That's but if they're doing a good job, if, if they're doing, doing a good, good job, job the money's going to come the money. That's right. But if you're doing a bad job, I don't understand. I'm not going to give an employee that never shows up and does a bad job a raise. What, Absolutely. That's not, that's not a way to run a business. Seems to be the way we run our public school system. It is. No accountability. Can't get rid of bad teachers. Can't hold these people accountable. Can't have a differential where the good public schools get more resources and the bad public schools get de-resourced, and then you take those kids and say, we're going to send them to charter, we're going to send them to private. We have to ensure an education for the kids, but if your school seems incapable of doing it, why don't we find a very right. venue that can actually competently educate these kids? And it's, it's punishing the children to keep the adults happy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if the kids are not learning reading, writing, math, if they're not getting the things they need to be able to operate. They're the learning about 64 genders. <laughs> you know, I, I have never once needed that in my profession. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's just sad. Like we're, we're failing our kids, again, in order to please administrators, bureaucrats, people who, you know, feel like they deserve this money that's coming into public schools when we have a lot of really hardworking teachers right. that are trying to do the best thing they can by their kids, but they're being handcuffed by, you know, either the, either by the teacher's union 
by the district or by both, they're not able to meet the needs of the kids who are really smart and they're not able to meet the needs of the kids that need a little extra help. Because mm -hmm. a lot of kids that need a little extra help sometimes are also really smart. They just, you know, they don't, you know, they don't learn in the same way. So mm -hmm. again, devolving that decision-making power or bringing that decision-making power back to the parents, giving parents more power to direct the education of their children is going to meet the needs of far more kids than what we're currently doing. That's awesome. I, w I would hope that that's something that could be done here. And, I, and that really should be a bill that should pass with bipartisan support. I would think so. As soon as the Democrats actually that serve decide they want to serve the families in their districts and the kids in their districts and not the teachers union, that bill can pass. Yep. And it should be a no-brainer now given how bad the numbers have gotten, how bad we feel these kids, particularly post-lockdown, mm -hmm. that we have to do something radical to improve our education. Otherwise, who who is going to build the next generation of rockets? Who's going to solve cancer? Who's going to do bake the next great supercomputer? Like, uh, America is going to lose on the global stage if we don't get these kids educated yeah. quickly and well. Yeah. So. And that's yeah. I, I mean, what's so encouraging was I, I listened to your interview with Dave Racer, uh, who's a family friend, and the th what he's doing and, and what I think again what parents don't even think that they could possibly do. What he's doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 kids at a time mm -hmm. with educating them in how American government works by experience, you know, letting them experience that, interact with these people who are involved in the process and really, really learn. And they also get that like that feeling of uh, accomplishment where they're like, hey, we we did this. We worked on this together. We asked the we asked the hard questions. We got the answers we needed to make a decision. Like that's, that's a really cool skill that one man and a few families got together and decided to, to teach their kids. And those kids are gonna, you know, those kids are clearly, they're gonna thrive, yeah. right? And again, I think so many working parents don't realize how much potential could be unleashed by, you know, opening up other options to them that their kids would thrive if they're able uh, if if we the gov uh, as the government we provided them some of the resources that we've already taken from them, mm -hmm. give it back to them and give them the ability to provide that education to their kids. That's awesome. I think those big three, right? Uh, crime, the economy, schools. Yeah, we win. We win on all those. Yeah, and I hope that uh, Minnesotans who've maybe never considered voting for someone with an R after the name, someone that might be conservative, can listen to this and say, look. Everything he says is so eminently reasonable. It's like if you never have a friend of a certain ethnic type or background, you, you assume people are a certain way. And then you yeah. listen and you're like, well, gosh, I mean, that sounds like a lot of stuff I might think. And maybe we could nibble at the edges on some disagreements and come to some kind of consensus. But like that sounds really reasonable. And the fact is that what we've been doing for a very long time has not been working. And every year it works for fewer and fewer people. That's right. And so if we want to restore America to being a functional uh, republic that serves we the people, it's going to be choosing folks like you and some of the other folks that I've talked to to actually serve in the legislature, serve, mm -hmm. not be served, and advance these ideals. And so, you know, I really appreciate you, you taking the time. I appreciate you running for this. I know how hard it is with little kids and trying to work and starting a business too, uh, 12 days to go yeah and um you know it's it's been fantastic chatting with you i hope we get a chance to chat again like 
when you're sworn in in yeah, January. that'd be great. And, um, you know, regardless of what happens with the election, I mean, I think it's like once you're in, you're kind of in politics, yeah. so you got to stay involved, right? <laughs> yes. They won't let you go. I know Adam oh, probably man. won't let you go. He's going to have you run it's, for something. It's been, yeah, it's been fun, and we're trying to take it one step at a time, but I, I think my wife's kind of come around more to that yeah. reality than I have. I'm like, well, we'll, you know, we'll see how it goes next year, but I mean, we're going to be in. I mean, we, this has been such a fun process, meeting people like you. We couldn't have done it if we hadn't signed up to run. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's just been the most fun part of it. Awesome. Well, thank you again for taking time out door knocking in the rain today. So hope you have a poncho. That's something. right. That's right. We're going to get uh, after it. Good luck. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.